Welcome to the East Bay's best podcast, The Capstone Conversation. This is a show that interviews political, government, and community leaders. We look at what is going on in your city, how are we developing things economically, and where are we going from here? Now I'm your host, Jared Ash. Welcome to this episode of The Capstone Conversation. I am your host, Jared Ash. Today, we are going to talk about the real estate market in the greater East Bay. I am joined by two gentlemen, one from Contra Costa and one from Northern Solano County, both with strong perspectives on what happened to the market in 2023, where it's going in 2024, and what are some policies that are happening right now that everybody should be aware of. It's a little different than just talking about government and infrastructure today. When we talk about real estate, it comes up relating to bigger perspective in our cities for economic development and interest rates and growth and housing shortages and development all impact where cities are going and what city leaders have to plan for. So we'll try to accomplish all that today while getting everybody a a great deal on a new upscale mansion in their favorite town. So first, David Shubb from uh, Contra Costa. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself and say hi? Hi, good afternoon. My name is David Shubb. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm a real estate broker in Walnut Creek. I served as president of the Contra Costa Association of Realtors in 2023 as well as a director to the California Association of Realtors and a delegate to the National Association of Realtors. I have been in the real estate business now for more than 50 years. So I've seen a number of different markets and they're they're all as good as you want to make them. Great. Ed, Edwin, do you want to introduce yourself, please? Sure. Uh, my name is Edwin Legaspi. I was president of our local association, Northern Solano, about two years ago. So 2022, I've served on our executive committee before then. I was a director before then as well. I've also been a state director for CAR for a number of years. I have not served for NAR, but that could be a goal in the future. I've been in the business of going on, gosh, Year 13, I think, year 14, something like that. And I operate mainly out of Vacaville. So great. Thank you guys for joining me today. David, maybe you could start. Tell us where do you see the market right now in Q1 of 2024? What do you see that's that's happening? What are the challenges ahead? Just give us an overview take. The market is always evolving and it's always in flux. There's always something going on that impacts the market in one way or another. And those impacts can be both good and bad at the same time. The biggest issue that we have is a supply issue. There is an extreme shortage of inventory. And at the same time, there is a very high demand for housing. Interest rates impact affordability, and as they go up, of course, it makes affordability 
more difficult. But at the same time, when interest rates come down, you have more competition for properties by buyers, and therefore you have multiple offers and the prices go up, which oftentimes more than compensates for the difference in the interest rate. So interest rates are an issue, supply is an issue, rental supply is an issue. A number of the local jurisdictions believe that rent stabilization and just cause eviction is necessary to allow people to be able to afford to rent locally. In my opinion, what they fail to realize is that most of the housing providers are mom and pop operators. They own one or two or a few rental housing units and they're, they're in the business to make money. So when it becomes too expensive, too difficult, too punitive to be a housing provider, they're going to take their money and move elsewhere. When they put their properties on the market, because there's such a high demand for people to own homes, those properties will probably be purchased by homeowners, which will further reduce the supply of rental housing, which will drag the rents up. So part of the problems that we have besides interest rates are how local government views housing and what they do to create it. Beyond that, we have issues with insurance. We have issues with water. We have issues with electrification. They all impact each other. So there's always a lot of things going on and, and to, to make an ad advertisement for us. It's important to have proper representation by qualified real estate people because it is difficult. Great. Edwin, do you want to weigh in with your perspective? Anything else? Yeah. Here's an overview of yeah. the market. Just, just a couple of things. As David mentioned, as it becomes less favorable to be a landlord in California, less people will want to buy an investment property. And that's also um, going to kind of dwindle the buyer market. But in terms of uh, rental units available, that's also going to further diminish that stock. It seems in my years of being in, uh, in real estate, like the number one factor is inventory, as uh, David was talking about. Interest rates play a huge role. I've seen demand for housing just this month as the interest rates been whipsawing change drastically. I did an open house a couple of weeks ago. And everyone is really excited because the interest rates dipped a bit and they're all ready to make some offers. So that's the kind of market we're in. We're interest rate driven and inventory driven. So far, I think this year will play favorably in interest rates. What was the drop that occurred in the interest rates? It was even minor. I think conventional went down to low sixes, but that was enough to get people excited that it might go lower or it was just enough to get them excited to get their fit in the door. Interesting. Yeah, I just looked as we were recording this at the end of January in 2024, and it shows the interest rates are still for residential six and a half to seven, depending on if it's a jumbo, which a lot of mortgages are in the area just by, by nature or people's credit scores and things like that. So that's still high compared to those that were under 3% in 
who were fortunate enough with that rate. So on a million dollar house, what are we roughly looking at between 3%, let's say, and 7%? The mortgage, depends on everything. The mortgage payment doubles. Doubles. Yeah. I think affordability in California right now, CAR measures that. And I think the last thing I saw was that 24%, I think it was 24% of Californians can afford to buy a single family home in California. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing interesting. One available, like you said, there's a housing (laughs) bridge and multiple people going to, to an open house still. So driving prices up. That's the interesting thing about Solano County. It's the uh, less expensive sister of the seven counties. Right. So a lot of people, and we've seen this throughout the years, sell their million dollar, 1300 square foot house in the East Bay. And then uh, buy something in Solano County for like six hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, and and it's, a, it's probably the same house. <laughs> but one of the problems that we have at the other end is that people that have owned a home for a long time and have acquired a large equity when they go to sell it have a very large capital gain tax bill to pay. So there's a lot of seniors that would sell their home in a heartbeat, but for that, and because of that, they don't. So that's part of what's causing the shortage of inventory, along with the people that have 3% interest rate mortgages that don't want to get a new mortgage at 6%. Yeah, the vapor lock, we call it. (laughs) No one wants to get rid of their rate. People were only supposed to date the rate and, uh, marry the house, but some people are married to their rate. That's well, I'm, I'm one of those. We would love a bigger, you know, primary residence, but you know, between the property tax shift and the interest rate shift, I would like quadruple my mortgage to get the same house. And that just sounds less exciting to me for, for the same deal. Right. And my in-laws are in that group that's stuck and they talk about the property tax shift that they're over on the peninsula and how if they bought a new house, even at half the value, they've had their house for 30, 40 years, it would impact their property taxes and it limits their moving to turn that house over to school-aged families, right? Well, the, the property tax issue has been mostly solved for people that are 55 years old or older. California Association of Realtors helped get Proposition 19 passed, which allows seniors and others to move their low property tax base anywhere in the state of California. The capital gains tax issue hasn't been solved yet. Congressman Panetta in Monterey has, I think, the last two years or three years in a row sponsored bipartisan legislation to double the capital gains tax exemption from 250, 250,000 for a single filer and 500,000 for a dual filer to 500,000 and a million, which would, I'm, I'm sure would create a lot of inventory that's locked up because of that. Yeah, that'll be interesting. We'll, we'll try to find a link to that and put it in the show notes as well. David, you alluded to some market sort of shifts 
first, let's talk about insurance and how does that impact the housing market here in California? Wow, in so many different ways. First of all, it's difficult to get. There's a lot of parts of the state where you just can't get insurance except for California Fair Plan, which is very expensive and difficult to obtain as well. Adds to the cost of housing, makes it more difficult to, to sell a home because there's fewer buyers. But we're starting to see issues that are impacting financing, insurance issues that are impacting financing. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac purchase most loans from mortgage bankers, mortgage brokers, lenders, and they are taking a hard look at insurance, particularly in homeowner associations. If the homeowners association isn't insuring common area, a hundred percent of replacement value, they're not, they're starting to not buy the loans, which means the loans aren't being funded. So if you lose the ability to get Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac financing, or I'm sure HUD and VA will follow suit, it could have a huge impact, not only on the ability to buy, but on the ability to sell. And are there a lot of HOAs in Contra Costa and Solano County? Uh, yes, indeed there are. Well, I don't know about Solano, but there certainly are in Contra Costa. Yeah. And that's just one of the issues we're having with insurance. A lot of issuers don't want to be heavily invested in California. So they'll say, okay, well, we'll do, I'll just make up a number 200, 200 contracts in California this month. And by the first or fifth of the month, those are all gone. And then they don't issue things, issue any more policies. So it's the number of people doing insurance business in California, the number of companies is seems to be dwindling and, and the amount of work that they want in, from California is also dwindling. So that's, that's affecting buyers and sellers, as David said. Interesting. Is there anything being done from policymaker standpoint on this perspective that you guys are aware of? Well, I know CAR is in constant contact with the insurance commissioner trying to find ways to make it better. And I think they have, they've, they've reach some agreements and frankly, I haven't followed it close enough to articulate it here, but some of those from what I've looked at are good things and some of them may not be so good for the, uh, consumer. We'll see. Yeah. I was, I, I don't know what the follow-up is as well, but uh, we were told at one of our um, local meetings was that the insurance companies weren't allowed to make certain changes to policies during COVID. And now that all those COVID rules are gone, now the time of reckoning is coming. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about, uh, you mentioned electrification and water. How is that impacting the market and also anything as part of electrification, anything about renewable energy houses with solar panels, what should people and storage batteries, what should people know about all that stuff and how does it impact the market? Uh, Edwin, do you want to go first this time? Sure. New home developments around here have been having a difficult time getting approved just because of their connections to PG&E. It's, it's 
having, I don't, I don't know if that's what you meant by electrification or if you meant uh, getting rid of gas stoves, but, uh, getting new communities oh, hooked oh, up to, oh, okay. <laughs> so I think there's one is electrification. We'll define it as getting rid of gas stoves, gas heating, gas dryers, right? All electric right. Right. homes and the transition. And then the second aspect, which, which I have heard is a problem uh, on every side, commercial side as well is PG&E and the backlog to get new hookups in particular. Yeah. On a uh, personal side, I haven't seen a huge buyer demand to get rid of all of uh, the gas powered appliances in one's house yet. I feel like it's coming, yeah, but I haven't really experienced that yet. But uh, yeah, in terms of new home developments, it does, that's, does seem to be an issue of how to connect to PG&E and will the grid be able to supply energy to all these homes? I don't know what you're seeing in in a Contra Costa, David. The Bay Area Air Quality Management District has decided that beginning in 2027, unless things change, any water, any gas water heater that needs to be replaced must be replaced with an electric water heater. And the same for furnaces in 2029. So it's not just a simple matter of taking out the old unit and plugging in a new unit. Many of our homes, particularly the older homes, just don't have the capacity. They don't have the, the panels, the sub panels, the wiring to accommodate that. So I can see that as becoming a, an issue in housing. Solar, they changed how much credit you get back from PG&E, which is from what I'm reading, pretty much destroyed the solar industry, not destroyed, but impacted it greatly. I, I got solar just in the nick of time. I got it approved right before that April deadline, but rates are going up. And oftentimes when I have a buyer for a home, they want to know what the, uh, PG me bill is like for that property along with how much is the homeowners association dues and how much is everything else, because that impacts how much money they're willing or able to spend to purchase that new home. So is a house with solar panels and, and or batteries, is that worth more in value or does it just make it a little bit more attractive to to buy, but it doesn't necessarily change the the value of somebody's electric bill is near zero versus hundreds of dollars a month. Oh, I've seen some buyers who really, really care that a house have solar. And uh, I'm not trying to generalize here, but uh, I think it's usually if it's a stay-at-home mom with kids and they're going to, well, Vacaville is really hot. So you still want to run that AC pretty much all day in the summer. But overall, I'd say it's not that big of a deal in this part of in Solano County, if the house has solar, I haven't seen houses around here with batteries, but I'm sure it's coming. David, I've been, you know, I've had sellers ask me if I put solar on, which isn't cheap, will it increase the value of my property? And I really don't know the answer to that. I think, I think as utility rates increase, that it will become more and more of an issue. I think having it is just a nice thing that might help the house sell before the one down the street that doesn't have it. 
batteries, when I talked to the solar company that put my system in, I was surprised to hear from them that they didn't think it made sense for me to spend the money to put a battery in. And then it took up a lot of space and it was difficult to install. I'm not sure where that's going, but I, I think more and more it's going to impact real estate values. One of the problems we do have is with sellers are that there are sellers that obtain these PACE loans that on the surface seem to be a nice type of loan, but they get connected to your property tax bill and trying to sell the property sometimes is a problem because it takes time to get that disconnected from the property tax bill. Yeah, as David was saying, not all solar is the same. If you've leased the solar, if you have a power purchase agreement, or if you bought the solar but have a lien on it, or if you bought it with cash, like it's been fun dealing with solar for the past five years. We're getting better now. The CAR has a solar disclosure form that I think helps out. But man, dealing with solar has not been easy. Sometimes the solar company has sold the lien to someone else, and then you're dealing with just another processor been kind of very fun about that <laughs> those are all good good points to to know in here i i will say my my na- parents neighbors have a tesla roof and that's got some pinage to it so i'd like to see when their house sells like that that's that's got to add some value yeah well that's a different thing altogether right because it's the steadiness of a new roof and everything that goes into it well i think the i do a lot in for renewable energy projects. And I, I would think particularly in areas that are prone to uh, public safety shutoffs uh, and isolation from the power grid, you're going to get more interest in batteries, right? Parts right. of Orinda and Moraga and Contra Costa, which are just near the Oakland Berkeley Hills. I've got friends up there that have done it because they just feel like they get cut off a lot as well as other people near some of the open space areas in the two counties, that could be a place where that grows, right? It becomes attractive from a real estate perspective if you have that resiliency, but you also then have to explain to a buyer like, yeah, the power shuts off here a lot, but that's okay. Because <laughs> we're you're set for that and there's an advantage to that, right? Yeah, back when we had all those fires those years and PG&E was shut off for several days for some people, I, I could see a battery being uh, very useful in those cases. Let's talk about rent control. There's a couple of cities that have promoted it. There's AB 14, a statewide rent control initiative. What can you guys tell us about rent controls that are going on and some of the good and the bad impact of that? You alluded to it, but, but give me your individual opinions on that. David and then Edwin will go that way this time. I think well, we share the same we, opinion, just FYI. Yeah. I mean, we 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 all want we all strive for affordable housing. I mean, housing is very we you know, it, some people insist that it's a right, but housing's important. So as housing costs continue to rise, more and more people are having difficulty affording either to buy it or to rent it. So local governments are stepping in and they believe the right thing to do is to 
stabilize rents by limiting the amount that rents can be increased. The state, we have statewide rent control, which limits rental increases to the cost of living plus, what is it, Edwin, 5%? It's 5 or 10, yeah. Some of the local jurisdictions, though, are trying to limit it more than that. They want to limit it to um, 60%. City of Concord wants to limit it to 60% of the cost of living increase. So I can imagine it's going to be difficult for a housing provider to maintain the property unless they have a negative cash flow because the cost of living is what it is. And if rents can only increase by half of that, where does the money come from to take care of it? And again, the housing providers will probably opt to move out of those jurisdictions, but it's more than just limiting the amount of rent, they, they want to further impact what a landlord can do with the property, just cause eviction. They want to, in many instances, overturn Costa Hawkins, which exempts single family homes from rent control. It exempts properties built between before 1995, I think from rent control. So that can become a problem to a housing provider. You're not going to be able to ask a tenant to leave unless they're doing something that's illegal or not paying rent. So if you wanted to move back in to your own property, you would have to pay the tenant relocation assistance, a large amount of money to get them to help them move. So there's just these ongoing attempts that are going to limit property owners' rights that are, to me, very concerning. I don't own any residential investment property anymore, in part because of this. You know, one of the things that I see and I've heard in the arguments in Concord in particularly are they have a lot of older apartment buildings that need work and clearly like the the landlords now might be absentee it might be in a father or grandfather that built the place and now it's owned by a couple of other generations that it's just not been worth it for them to make the investment but if a new buyer were to come along, the rent control makes it really hard to want to upgrade the whole build uh, until maybe a unit clears out. And then even so, the common areas are hard. So you lack gaining the investment if a property can't cash flow for people if you can't raise those rents versus in other states or, or other regions where people can raise those rents for, for the work that's there by demand. I don't know if that's right. And, and like, as a housing provider, all of your expenses just gone up, right? With all those, all this inflation. So a roof used to on a 1500 square foot house, used to cost $8,000, $7,000. Now it's like $15,000, but they're limiting your upside by limiting your rents. On top of it all, I think in July, a new law comes into play where a landlord can only ask one month's security deposit. And I don't know if you've ever put carpet in a place, but if, if they ruin their carpet just through normal wear and tear, well, I guess you can't 
take from their deposit for normal wear and tear. But if anything else goes wrong and you need to take from that deposit, that deposit is usually not enough to cover the damages left from uh, a really bad tenant. So they're basically just discouraging um, rental units, discouraging buyers from buying rental units, discouraging owners of rental units to have them. And in my, in my view, what the government should be doing is instead of discouraging housing providers, they should be finding ways to encourage them so that there's more units available. You know, the city of Oakland, not long ago, I guess it was Mayor Brown wanted to build 9,000 units, I think, and they did. Last year, rents in Oakland declined, I've read anywhere between 8%, 13%. So it's not, it's not the, the issues is supply. So let's talk about supply for a minute, gentlemen. We, we've had new RENA numbers where the state, every city has always had to submit RENA numbers. And I think most of our listeners know that's the requirement for, for housing options. But this year, the state came with a stick and they've been really holding cities to the fire for it more than they've ever done before saying, hey, you can't, you can't zone a landfill or open space for housing and then attempt to get away with it. We're going to pay attention. And they've pushed a lot of cities back. I think we're now at between Alameda, Contra Costa and Solano County. I think we're at about 80% of the city done uh, or should be done by the time we get to at the end of Q1 of 2024. How do you see the market now responding to that? Do you see growth happening? Do you see that supply? Or are we still 10 years away from catching up? And, and what, what will attract a supply in one area versus the other? Uh, Edwin, do you want to hit that first this time? Oh, sure. The, we're still at a really big deficit for housing. So uh, I don't know if it's really affecting the numbers. They used to say we were 2 million housing units short and it was growing at, I think, 200,000 housing units a year. I think uh, that was probably about a year last year that we were getting those numbers from CER. So I don't- Statewide? Statewide, yeah. Okay. Um, it was easy to remember, right? 2 million short and growing 200,000, basically 10% a year. So we're a long ways away from having a really balanced market. But I mean, I guess these RENA numbers are coming in and are making the situation a little bit more palatable. David, any additional thoughts on that? Well, the, there's a number of issues. I mean, part of it is just the cost of land. Part of it, it's the cost of construction. But a large part of it is just the cost involved in getting government approval to build anything. Uh, CEQA, local, local city tiny frames to get things done can drag a project on for years. Increasing interest rates has had an impact on it. So again, a, a developer is there to make money. And if they can't make money, they're not going to build it. Typically, to make money, they're going to be looking at the upper end, upper price ranges, because that's where they're more apt to be able to return a profit. If it's a lower price range, it's going to be more difficult, if not impossible, and it may not get built 
at all. So Edwin's right. The state um, is serious about this now. Cities that haven't met the housing element goals are are in jeopardy of losing state funding for a lot of different things. The, what do they call it? The builder's remedy has taken right. hold where if a city isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing, the developer can just go in and ignore zoning and just do whatever he wants. And that's, that's getting the attention of, of cities. So yeah, there's, they're running out of land, but you know, there's some cities that are saying, well, we just simply can't meet these numbers because there's no place left to build. That's true if they don't change their zoning. That's true if they don't allow things like ADUs to become more prevalent and the state's making them do that. And ADUs are becoming really popular. Accessory dwelling units, we used to call them granny flats, but in-law units, there, there are so many now. So many companies that are providing and building ADUs, I feel, around here at least. And and didn't they just pass the state pass a law that they can now be sold separately if the cities will allow it? Yeah, I think so. Maybe it's not a law yet, but potentially people will be able to sell the the ADU as a separate unit. They've become much more affordable to finance them, to create them. Until recently, lenders wouldn't wouldn't lend on them at all. Well, yeah, I'll I've been waiting it. to see one go for sale that has an ADU. I'd like to see the appraisal, see how that was valued, what value the appraiser gave the ADU. It'll, industry's changing on that one. I'll, I'll look up and see if we could see the updated ADU laws and put that put that into the show notes and. Yeah, I think one of the advancements in those two is you can get them dropped. And I've looked at one for our back. Like if I were going to put in a nice, like separate unit for an office, how much space do I want? And I can get a one bedroom with like a living room and a, like a mini kitchen could fit in the back corner on the other side of my pool. And it would cost about one hundred and twenty-five, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and that's much cheaper. And that's like with all the hookups. Now maybe it's a little more if I'm that far away from the house and have to bring in the pipes and the electricity out there. But that's a lot cheaper than the average price for a square foot for construction, right? Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if your feed is. Oh yeah, was that Amazon or Walmart? Like I, I see well Amazon, Walmart, and Home Depot offering things like that. I, you know, I don't know, was, I think an independent company, but it was like, if you can build it up within a week, think about how nice that is to not be disturbed yeah. through normal construction costs, right? You guys, you guys aren't old enough, but I remember when you could buy uh, prefab houses through the Sears catalog. You don't even oh. know what the Sears catalog is. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Never I, I mind. I do, and I've heard <laughs> that story before you could, a craftsman, right? The original craftsman. Oh. Yeah. All right, let's talk about technology and the real estate market. How are realtors and agents, how are you embracing new technology? 
and keeping up with changing times. How are your customers, buyers and sellers embracing new technology and what's, what's out there? What should they know? Who wants to take that first? Edwin, go for it. Sure. We were at, I was at the CAR conference, the expo for realtors. AI was just the, you know, everyone's talking about AI, whether it's you're in real estate or not. Realtors have been using AI now, I think, to do property descriptions. You can kind of stage your house. You know, you provide the schematics of the house or just interior pictures. And there's AI out there that will stage the house for you. It's pretty amazing. The, a lot of realtors do content creation. And there's a ton of AI that will help either do the captions for you or give you ideas or write scripts for you. Of course, it's just amazing what AI can do. Um, what else have I seen? Oh yeah. AI doing uh, video editing for you. It's basically a huge brain, a brain that's bigger than mine. <laughs> David, how do you see it changing? The marketplace. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you how it was in 1970. No, I'm not going to do that. It'll take too long, <laughs> but, but I've, I've seen, of course, a lot, a lot of technological advances. Um, one of them that I saw was called a fax machine. That's how far back I go, but yeah, technology has, has allowed us to do more things faster and like everything else, there's some good and there's some not so good to that. One of the things we're seeing that we've got coming in multiple listing is artificial intelligence that will look at photographs that the agent uploads about the house. And instead of the agent having to manually fill out all the information for multiple listing the AI will do it for us. And then we just have to go in and, and review it to make sure it's right. But I'm told that it will reduce the time for an agent to input a listing into multiple listings from 20 minutes to about eight minutes. So that can be a good thing. One of the things that aren't so good about that is not so good about AI is that AI, at least not so far, has been trained to understand fair housing laws. So we have to make sure that whatever we're getting from artificial intelligence doesn't get us in trouble legally. But there's a lot of stuff going on with technology. I serve on our local association, MLS Business and Technology Committee, and we're constantly reviewing things to help with lead generation, with multiple listing development, with virtual staging, with things that drones can do to help us market properties. It just goes on and on. Yeah. It's going to be like maybe when a buyer shops for houses, like you do in Amazon and you, I don't know click on a block of cheese and it'll say, oh, well, maybe you'll like this cheese too, or this wine. So it'll be like, you click on a house and AI will kind of know what you're looking at and suggest or recommend other houses. Could be very crazy. <laughs> well, that is, that is what this company that we're looking at includes, that it will help make recommendations for similar properties so that yeah. it shortcuts the agent's time. You know, real estate's emotional. So I, 
I don't ever see a computer. Well, I shouldn't say that. No, in my lifetime, I don't think we'll ever see a computer replacing what we do. We can use it to uh, help us become more efficient. Well, right. as a as a buyer, right, the advent of all the apps, Redfin, Trulia, Zillow, the realtors, it lets you see so much and compare that before you even start talking to the agent or in comparison to the agent, just giving you a head start, right? To see what you like and be able to do that. All right, let's, let me talk about one other key topic is there's been a lot of class action lawsuits against the Realtors Association and other things. I know I'm coming at this from your individual perspectives and opinions, I don't want you to comment on the lawsuit, but how do you see the industry evolving, changing? What changes should they be making to stay ahead of things? Edwin, you want to take that one first and we'll end it with David? Sure. The lawsuits have been, you know, disruptive and the, I should, we have like, we've been doing this business this way for, I don't know, let's say. 80, 80, 90 years. And I feel like it's really upending the way almost everything is structured, the way lending is structured. So I think it'd be, they'd be very hard pressed if they really understood what's going on and how the system works. I don't think they would change anything, but yeah, the lawsuits have been a really big deal. The, 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 the media really ran with it in terms of my conversations with buyers and sellers, nothing's really changed. Nothing's changed on the boots on the ground. Yeah. Um, first, let me say my opinions are my opinions, not the opinion of any of the associations. The lawsuits are going to be a long way off before they're resolved. So uh, who knows what is going to change in the industry because of them. Um, I do feel that it's certainly a wake-up call. I, I think that we agents need to do a much better job of educating our clients as to our value, what we bring to the table, what they're paying for, and, and what happens in being able to offer compensation to a cooperating broker opposed to not offering compensation to a cooperating broker. What is apt to happen if and when dual agency disappears and a buyer may not have any representation? It has, I think, in my opinion, a big effect on the clear cooperation policy, which may cause a bigger disruption than the media disruption from these lawsuits. Yeah. And when representing a buyer, you could show a property, you could show a buyer like 30 houses and then, you know, they might decide that they want to just keep renting or never move and you're not compensated in, in this current model. So there's risks in, there's risks to agents in, in both ways. We need to act professionally like an attorney, like a CPA, like an appraiser. I don't believe any of us would expect to retain the services of one of those professionals without having entered into some kind of compensation agreement with them first. Yeah, that's a, a 
good statement there. And we've seen a shift in a lot of industries, right? With the advent of technology, total disruption to the taxis and to and shared mobility now and, and rental cars changing, as well as hotels with Airbnb and VRBO. And so lots of disruptors, like you said, it may be years off, but I think you both alluded to customer service. It's that personal relationship and service that's provided. And that means a lot in any business still, right? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Any further thoughts for me to take it home? David, do you want to go first and we'll end with Edwin? The real estate process is a very complicated, a very intricate process that without the assistance of a professional could be catastrophic to a client. You know, it's not simply about money. Oftentimes the wrong decision can negatively impact a family for a long period of time. The real estate industry will always be changing. There's always something good. There's always something. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the sky is falling when it comes to something that was going on, whether it was 18% interest rates, whether it was this litigation, whether it was bank foreclosures, there's always something that the media will take and turn it into a negative one. In fact, it oftentimes is an opportunity, not only for the real estate professional, but for the client. And thanks for having me. Edwin. Oh, man, you can't approve on what David said, but slow and steady wins the race. <laughs> well, thank <How> you. That? <laughs> and thanks for having me too. Yeah. I appreciate both of you and hopefully our listeners found this interesting. I will provide contact information for both speakers in the show notes. So if you're interested in getting a hold of either one of them, that you can see it there just by scrolling up on your app a little bit. And really appreciate your time and perspective on the market. And maybe later this year, as legislation is going through, we'll have somebody from CAR on to, to provide us with some updates from there as well. Thank you, gentlemen, both for being here today. Thanks. Thank you. Wait, don't leave yet. Hit subscribe. Make sure you get the weekly updates. We have a new episode every Wednesday for stuff happening in the East Bay. In the meantime... Follow me on LinkedIn, Jared Ash, or check out our firm where we have a weekly newsletter and blog at Capstone Government Affairs on LinkedIn. Thanks for joining us today on the Capstone Conversations.